Um, we are in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7. Now, let me just kind of, again, catch up to speed. This book basically is, chrono, you know, I guess it's writing down, it's, it's explaining, it's sharing how Israel got a king. It's saying there, there's basically a time period where Israel's ruled by judges, and it's showing the story of how they had a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. And God's like, fine, give them a king, almost reluctantly. And we'll get to that next week. But this series for us, Prophets and Kings, we're walking through Samuel's Kings and Chronicles. The reason we want to do this is we just see the story of the gospel in so many different ways in these books. We see the story of brokenness and redemption, of suffering and glory. The gospel is not just proclaimed in the book of Matthew. It's proclaimed in the book of Genesis. And so we want to see, as we kind of open up the Bible, work our way through the Bible, we want to see how the gospel story is just intertwined throughout this book. Now, just to catch you up in case you've missed uh, what's going on, uh, in chapter 4, we see the Philistines and Israel go to battle. The Philistines capture the ark. Then they basically have issues with the ark in chapter 5. In chapter 6, the ark is sent back. And here we are in chapter 7. It's right before we see kind of the king or this idea of a king being introduced. And here in chapter 7, the ark has been in a certain city for 20 years. And there's a little mini revival that breaks out. It's a little mini revival. And God does an amazing thing. And then war happens. And I just want to look, there's so much um, powerful truths in this. There's so many good thoughts in this. And I want to kind of direct your attention to verse 2, because we ended in verse 2, and in case you missed it, there's this phrase that ends verse 2 that sets us up for what we're going to be looking at. But here's how it ends in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. It says, from that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There's a lot of disagreement on what that even means. But it seems as if the people's hearts were like ripe for revival. They've realized we haven't been doing it right for the, the past 20 years plus. And it seems as if now like they're ready, they're la- their hearts lamented, weeping, grieving after the Lord. Like, Lord, we're ready. And Samuel, as a true and good prophet, he, he speaks into them and he calls them to repentance. And there's this little mini revival that breaks out. So I want to read this. We're only going to look at verse 3 through verse 14 today. All right? Verse 3 through 14. Why don't we just read it so you kind of get a big picture of the story, and then we'll pray and uh, look at it some more. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. Very excited about today. Here's what Samuel says. It says, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashereth, and they served the Lord only. Everyone say only. Only. Verse 5. And guys, I don't know if you hear this. There's a little bit of an echo. Is that just me? Do do you guys? Okay. Do you mind helping me with that echo? It's pretty great. I love it. All right. Verse (laughs) 5. It says, then Samuel said, (laughs) this is great. I feel like I'm just thundering the voice of God. I don't know. Uh, We're actually going to read that in a second. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out uh, before the Lord. And they fasted on that day, and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease 
to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below as beth Then Samuel, verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. The people confess, they repent, God answers. There's a little revival that breaks out. There's a war that starts, they're defeated, and they're like, we cannot forget this redemption. We cannot forget what God has done for us. And uh, I just want to pray and say, let us also remember like, our redemption. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you, Jesus, for um, these stories that are not just stories. God, you're just rehearsing or reenacting this idea of suffering, of life being vain, of life being meaningless without you. And Lord, when we forsake our idols, our gods, and turn to you, you answer. And we just say, thank you, God. We need you. Lord, we ask that you would just um, accomplish your will in our hearts today. That God, you just continue to remove things in our life that take your place. That Jesus, there'd be a sense of repentance and confession and fasting. That everything we see here that led to you, God, restoring them, redeeming them, restoring their land to them. God, everything that you, you did, we ask that you just do it again. Do it again, Lord. Do it in our lives. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for how this points to him, how this reminds us of him. And just, we ask that you'd make that incredibly clear in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You guys know this, but there are some things in our life that need to get out of our life. There are some things in our life that we need to like get away from them. And once we do, life just seems to get better. There are some things like we can look at it very easily and say, this has to go. Like, this has to go. This has to get out of here. You know, it can be as simple as just a toxic relationship, a bad influence, just an app on your phone, just stealing your time, your morality. This could be sugar in your diet. I have no idea. That's my thing. It could be something that's like just stealing away from your life. You're like, as soon as I end this, or as soon as I get this out of my life, life will be so much better. In a simple way of putting this, I remember just years ago, you might remember this, I really needed ankle surgery. Uh, I had a couple of bones that were chipped off and floating around my ankle. It's very bizarre. I'm not sure how that happened over time, but there's a couple of bones that were just like not in, there's, they're literally not connected to anything. So I got an x-ray, he sees these bones and puts me under and he takes out these bones and he shows me, he goes, you actually had like three teeth-sized bones just floating around your ankle. And it was so weird because I remember like just during that time, I could actually like move this little knot in my ankle. I could like move the bone, it'd get lodged in a weird spot. My foot couldn't bend and I'd just like lift it up and my foot could move again. It was amazing. Uh, so he removed these little teeth-sized bones that chipped off. I've, again, I have no idea. And once it was gone, like I can move my ankle again. It was amazing. Like once it was removed, I feel like I could have life all over again. It was incredible. There are some things that just need to be removed from our life. But, but we know this. It's not just about removing things from our life. 
it's like as soon as we try to stop to doing something, it's almost like that thing comes up more. If you have ever fasted, if you've ever taken a day, like, I'm not going to eat food. It seems like whenever I try this, there's people offering me free food. I'm like, what is that? Like, as soon as I try to stop, I'm like, I'm not going to eat sugar today. Someone's like, do you want some free Reese's? I'm like, I would love free Reese's. It's very bizarre. It seems like it's not just enough to remove it. We need to also replace it with something. You see, there's this idea in scriptures that you need to remove things from your life, but that will not be enough. Like, you can remove things all day long, but you'll probably replace them with weaker things or maybe stronger things. We need to replace it with something better. You know, we're told, and it's really interesting, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John ends his book, and it's kind of bizarre. Everyone's like, this is weird. He's talking about loving God, loving one another, and verse 21 says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's how the book ends. It's very bizarre. He's like, love God, love one another, and he's like, you're, like, you're, following, his, you're, you're following him. You're like, this makes sense. And then he just goes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Like, you sometimes have to fight. Like, I have to keep myself from this. It's weird just being like a youth pastor for, for years and talking to so many youth who, when they'd fall into sex, sexual temptation or pornography, some of the things I would hear was, I, I wasn't even looking for it. Like, it would just pop up on my phone. I mean, and sometimes you're like, really, are you lying to me? But there'd be things like, on Instagram, on social media, it's almost like the algorithm led me down this track and I didn't even want it. It was just, it was just there. And he says, keep yourself from this. But then you go, okay, but that's, but how? Like, but How? Do I just, how do I stop? Like, how do we stop sinning? How do we stop getting idols in our life? Like, how? It's not just keeping from, but it's turning to. Paul made this really clear. He talks about this to the Thessalonians, and he's like, you did this well. Listen to this verse. I just want to point it up. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I love that. He says, you turned to God from, back to the living and true God. Sometimes we have to turn away from things, but we also have to turn to something else. You can turn away from idols all day long, but that will not solve the problem. You also have to turn to the living and true God. Again, it's not just about stopping things. I think so often in my Christian life, just growing up, it was about what you should not do. Don't do this. But what about what do I do? He says, turn from and turn to the living and true God. You did that. He goes, in Thessalonians, you did it the right way. You turned from and you turned to. And I want to say this, as we talk about this today, obviously in our section, there was idols in the nation of Israel's life. And what they did, they did this exactly. They, they turned from these idols and they served the Lord only. They turned to God only. Listen, it, can't, it has to be both. It can't be one or the other. You have to, I have to turn from, the, I can't serve God and idols. And I can't just try to stop serving idols. I have to also turn to God. And this is so key when it comes to removing idols in our life. Now, when I say idols in our life, we're kind of like, what is that? Sometimes we kind of think like ancient pagan idols, like the little shrines set up. And, and listen, that, that is still the case in many places in the world. You'll still see little idols, little shrines showed up, India, Thailand, Vatican. You'll still see these little idols or shrines set up. But also, it's much more than that. It's much more than that. Idols are not just things or little shrines. It can be ideas, pursuits, desires, ideologies, and this is what he's getting into, and I want us to get into this as well. So as we walk through our text today, here's a few points about idols. And here's really what we see to the best of my ability. And I know John last week made fun of my alliteration, but I don't care. I have, it. I have some again. Um, here's what we have. Number one, repenting of our idols, repenting of idols. Two, redemption from idols. And three, remembering that redemption. So let's just look at the first point. We're going to see repenting of idols. This is what they do in verse three. Let's read verse three. The repenting of idols. Verse 3. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods 
and the Ashereth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And he, did, he does just that. Verse four. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashereth and they serve the Lord only. I mean, this is worth like, worth like noting or underlining. I'm gonna put this verse up here again. Just like underline these phrases. It's so powerful. Return to the Lord with all of your hearts. This is what it looks like to repent. Return to the Lord with all of your heart. Put away the foreign gods. Return, put it away. Direct your hearts to the Lord. Serve him only. I mean, the way this is described is saying there's idols in your life. You need to repent. You need to turn away. Stop serving them. Serve God only. Now, again, when it comes to idols, we might think of like this primitive thing. But I want us to see that, you know, you might know this, but all of us here have idols. I'm not going to ask you, like, whether or not you have idols. I'm going to assume you do have idols. We all have idols. We all have things that want to take the place of God in our life. We all have things that we allow it or we make it take the place of God in our life. What that can mean or what that can look like is this thing will give me meaning. This thing will give me security. If I could just have this, I will have everything my heart longs for. What we see is that these idols, they always leave you empty. They always leave you wanting more. It never satisfies. Now for them, they had like names to their idols and certain ideas attached to it. We might not have names, but we do have idols. For them, he mentions here just two. He mentions Ashereth and Baal. Uh, a simple thing, Ashereth was a female god of fertility and sexuality. Baal, it's kind of debated a little bit, but was a male uh, god of, of just the storm uh, of fertility as well. But here's the idea. They had certain gods they worship, like the god of war. You worship the god of war. Like we, we want victory in war. We're going to worship this god of war. Uh, we want children. We're going to worship this god who might give his children. Uh, we want some sort of victory in this area. We're going to worship that god. They put names to their gods. And a lot of cultures did this. This could be Greek, Roman, the Canaanite, Canaanite gods, Philistine gods. Maybe they adopted from one another, which they did. They definitely kind of stole from different gods. You see similarities. But here's the idea. They put names to their gods. We might not do that, but we do that as well. We might not put a name to the God of success and the God of money, like Mammon, but we still serve that same God. We might not have certain game, names like Molech, where the nation of Israel, the Canaanite God, who would take their children and they'd offer them up, burn their children alive, boil them alive, literally have these bronze or kind of like metal statues of this God and put their kids inside the belly and burn their children alive. We might not do it that way, but we do it our own way. We want our own freedom, our own independence, our own security. We want God to answer our... We, here's the thing. You see this all the time. We just kind of redevelop it in a different way today in 2022. We still worship and serve gods. It just looks a little different. It maybe looks a little more nuanced. It looks more sophisticated. But we still worship the gods they worshipped. We still fall into the same traps they fall into. If I could just appease this God, if I could just get this, this God will satisfy me. You know, it's really interesting that the first commandment out of the Ten Commandments, out of the Decalogue, the first commandment you guys know is you shall have no other gods before me. God knows that our heart is prone to want to make things other gods, or to make it into a god. He knows that. His first commandment is don't have any other gods before me. And notice the second commandment, it's so funny to me. He knows like we're, we're all little mini lawyers in our heart. Like what does it mean to have any other gods before you? God's like, oh, let me give you the second commandment. Second commandment, he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You, the idea of just anything on earth, anything on earth, you shall not worship. God's like, I know what you're going to do. I know you're going to play that little game. What about this God? Does this count? Yes, that counts. Anything above, below, on earth? He goes, anything. You know, it's interesting because if you break this first commandment, you break them all in reality. If you are 
lying, it's probably because you're trying to protect some sort of God that you're pursuing. If you are coveting, it's probably because you're trying to pursue some God you want in your life. All of them kind of go back to this first commandment. You shall have no other gods. If you kill, if you kill, if you murder, if you do anything, the idea is like because you want something more than God. Something is fighting for the throne of your life right now. Again, this is not just for the nation of Israel. Like when I read this, and I read like the pain they're going through, like it's such a weird transitional season for the nation of Israel. They're kind of leaving Judges, the book of Judges. Samuel is the last prophet. We'll see that actually he's kind of his sons are, but they're terrible prophets. They're in this weird transitional period, and it's hard for them. And they're like, we want to get right. And Samuel's like, the only way to get right is you have to remove these idols and serve the Lord only. And this is so important for us. We have never graduated this. We don't leave this. I, I, here's what I think. We maybe don't worship these other gods, but we continue in their practices. It's really interesting. Like, are there idols in the church? I would say, yes, absolutely there are. Are there idols in my life that I have to constantly be aware of? Like, yes, I love where we live. I love the privilege of, I love the freedoms that our country offers. I love the freedom of religion. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for what our country said. Hey, we need to let people have this freedom to choose who they want to worship and serve. I'm so thankful for that. But I'd say in the, in the midst of, as the church has developed in our country, it might look different in different countries, but in our country, I think over time, what can begin to happen is we want this American dream Christianity versus Jesus' dream for Christianity. And I think that can easily happen. It's like, well, the success and power and influence, it's not bad, it's not, but it can corrupt our hearts very easily. We have to be aware of the idols that can happen in our life. If we go to Thailand, if we go to India, if we go to Europe, there might be similar idols, but different. I think every, the whole idea of what, what Samuel's doing and what I'm trying to do is sometimes we have to put our finger on the idols of our heart. Like it, Samuel's job was to say, your idols are Ashtoreth and Baal. But I, I'd say, so what are our idols? Like, what are the things in our church or in our lives, in our hearts that are taking the place of God, that this is more important to you than God? And I'd say there's, there's many, and it's terrifying. I think some of our job is to say, like, we have to be aware, maybe we, we don't worship it in name, but we worship it in practice. Here's what I find really interesting. In Exodus 23, God warned them of this. Exodus 23, 24, I'll put the verse up here. Listen to this. It says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their God, nor serve them, nor do as they do. Nor do as they do. I think sometimes the church can adopt certain practices of the world. We try to put like a different spin on it, a different spin on it. And there's certain cultural idols that we kind of take into our life. And we try to make them in our own image or make them something we want. And we try to lessen them. They're not a big deal. Here's what I'm trying to get at. I think there are some idols. Again, it's not a question of whether or not you have idols, but what are the idols? I love how Calvin talks about it. John Calvin says our hearts like idol factories, constantly producing new idols. If it's, if it's a certain idol this week, and maybe you defeat it, or def, you know, you're like, I've had victory, it might be a new idol next month. Just we're constantly reproducing these new idols. Again, now, what is an idol? It sounds so weird even saying that word. Uh, here's how Tim Keller defines it. He wrote a beautiful book called Counterfeit Gods, essentially counterfeit idols. Here's how he described it. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It's crazy if you think about that definition. It's almost like if I lose this thing, is life even worth living? If that is like where you're at emotionally with it, saying that is your God. Like if I have this, I have everything. What is the this? 
What is that thing you think if you could just have this, that would give you ultimate meaning, ultimate pleasure? Or if that thing was removed from your life, if I lost this person, if I lost this, lost this financial stability, if I lost this, then life would be over. And he's saying, then that is the, pla- that is the thing that has taken the place of God in your life. L- listen, again, all of us have this. And it's not just enough to turn from it. We have to turn to something else. And this is essentially what Samuel is getting at with them. Samuel is calling out their cultural idols. And again, it's funny, just even preparing this week, it's like, Lord, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I, I don't want to have a list of, it's so hard, like, where do you begin? There's just a new thing every week, every month, stealing my time, my attention, my energy, my money, my passions, my enthusiasm for the things of God, the kingdom of God. It's like there's a new thing constantly trying to be an idol in my life. And I'm just constantly trying to be aware and fight. And it's very difficult. It's like, what do we even talk about at this point? You know, Eugene Peterson in his book on 1 Samuel, I love how he described it. He says, we cannot understand Samuel's preaching as a mere campaign for moral decency. He's not just saying, be moral. We can't understand that way. This is much deeper. It's a theological and spiritual repentance that involves abandoning the, culture, the, the culture's way of doing things. Samuel's preaching rescues the people from their culture. You ever think about that? Like, this is what preaching is. Like, what is preaching? It's like, how do we rescue people from the cultural traps that we all have? If not here and we go somewhere else, it'll be new, a new cultural trap, a new cultural ideology, a new belief system, a new thing, a new pursuit. Yes, it could be materialism. It could be hedonism. Just do whatever you want. Do what feels good. It can be an ideology. It can be something. And it's like, how do we preach in such a way that's like saying we have to fight and be aware this is going to creep into our lives? So here's a, f- a few things I put down. I put like discovering our idols. And I try to look at a few different ways to look at this. First thing is this, time. How do we discover our idols? Time. Like, look at your time. I think obviously time is a great indicator of what you value. Like, it's okay, by the way, like, I gotta be really clear. It's okay to have hobbies. It's okay to have things that are very life-giving. It's okay to do things that, like, give you meaning and joy that's beautiful. But, like, when you have that alone time, what does your mind go to? When you have some free time, is it just, like, let me just pass time by being on my phone? Do you, do you just think about how can you make the next big thing? Like, do you think about the next relationship? Like, what is the thing you're thinking, like, okay, I have some free time now. Where, does your th- where do your thoughts go to? It's really interesting. I think time, like what we do with our time, really indicates where our heart is at. I love how, I think it's William Temple, he said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. So think about this. When you have like solitude, alone time, and I know it's very, like, I feel like it's very rare. Now having like three kids at home, it's like, it's like when they're in bed. But what do I do with my solitude? What do you do with your alone time? He's saying that you'll know what your religion is at that point. Is it beauty, success, money, security, entertainment, do you have any solitude, any alone time just reserved for God? Any solitude to say, hey, Lord, how are you? It's been a long day. I'm tired. It's good to see you. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Like, just, sometimes I have to like, talk like that to God. Sometimes I be like, hey, God, it's just good to be with you. I'm really tired right now. Um, I'm just going to read this, this thing. Can you just speak it over my heart? Like, it has to be like, really quiet, still. Just saying what you do with your solitude kind of reveals what you really are worshiping. What you do with your, your time. Hey, what do you do with your money? I think money is truly a great indicator of what you value and what you love. This idea of, of Jesus in Matthew 6, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Like where your treasure is, there's your heart. If your treasure is in this world, your heart will be in this world. If your treasure is in heaven, your heart will be in heaven. I think money is a great indicator. I forget that classic Billy Graham quote where he's like, I can know more about a Christian's like spiritual life or journey by just looking at their bank account, right? It's like, you can know like, what do you value? What do you give yourself to? Are you inclined to just spend money only on self? Is that all about me? Like, the money is only me. Is it generosity? Is it kingdom of God? Is it, like, what is it? Is it, like, how are you using that? He's saying money is a great indicator to reveal just where your idols are. 
time, money, I'd say emotions. Like what riles you up, man? Like I, I look at the weird political climate we're in. Like I think politics is like the new God of our day. I mean, it is the, it is the opiate of the people. It really is that. And you look at like when, it, when some left or right, something's brought up and it, it riles us up to this level where I go, man, that enthusiasm you have for politics, do you have that same enthusiasm for God? That anger for, towards something that's unjust, can you use that in a way where like you can point that towards sin? Not a person, but it's like God is angry towards sin. It's okay. It's okay. I love that in Ephesians, like be angry and do not sin. There's a sign where it's like we should, like the unrighteous, unjust things we see, like yes, that should move us. I think it moves the heart of God. But is it directed at politics? Is it directed at a, at a person? Or do we realize we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers? Do we realize it's something much bigger than that? My thing is like, what, what kind of wakes you up? Like your emotions. It's funny how I'll be talking to certain people and it's like, they're like very like even keel. And then once you like kind of find their subject, they're passionate about, they're like, come alive. Like, oh, that's what does it for you. Like, that's what you come alive to. That might be your God, that thing you come alive to. I'd say the thing that you come alive to is probably what you're worshiping. And so it's funny, like, it's, it's one of those things where maybe you're talking with someone at work or in life or at Starbucks or whatever, and you meet someone, and like, blah, 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 Jesus, like, Jesus, like, you said his name not in a curse word kind of a way. Like, you believe? Like, I do believe. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, that's like, I love that. That's, that's what we should come alive to. It's just Jesus, the kingdom of God, heaven. It's so beautiful. I think our emotions really do, believe, really do reveal kind of where we're at. I'd say, like, the next thought idea is, like, you're, you're, the things you turn to, to save you or give you that value, that functional savior. It's one thing to say, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my savior. But when you're going through a bad day, you turn to a pill bottle or a bottle or a person or an experience. It's that functional savior. That might be your God. What do you turn to? Where do you go when you're anxious? Where do you go when you're depressed? Where do you go when your heart's heavy? That functional savior, that's probably your God. I love how a guy named David Pallison puts it. He says, it's a longer quote, but he says, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken the title to your heart's functional trust? Preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. Questions bring some of people's idol systems to the surface. To who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions or similar ones tease out whether we serve God or idols, whether we look for salvation from Christ or from false saviors. I just think sometimes we have to ask these questions or take on like a, a, a spirit of curiosity towards someone like, where are you at? What is it you value? What is it you're worshiping and pursuing? Because all of us have it in some capacity, in some way. Uh, two Jewish scholars said it this way. The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. It's like if you had to get to this idea of like God's basically saying, have no other gods but me. I am the one and true living God. I'm the only one who's real. And yet we pursue all these fantasy, these fake facades, these things will never give you meaning or value. And so you can summarize it by just saying it's, it's the first commandment of the Bible. The central principles just have no other gods before him. And this is what Samuel's calling them to. So look at verse 4 again. We'll just read verse 4 through 6. Go on and see how they respond. It says, The people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashereth, and they served the Lord only. Verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Here's what's interesting. Notice this. You're going to see repentance, prayer, confession, and fasting. They're, Samuel basically calls out their idols. They're repenting. They're praying. Samuel's praying. 
They're fasting. They're confessing sin. These are basically like the ingredients to revival. Like, I don't know how to put it, but if you're like thinking like, God, how can you like stir a people, do something in us? There has to be repentance. I I think so often there's probably going to be fasting of some sort. Like we have to kind of put away food or put away something from our life, put away this thing and focus on on the presence of God. There's going to be some sort of confession. We have sinned. They said, we have sinned. We've sinned. There's going to be some sort of confession. There's going to be some sort of prayer. I mean, again, I, I'm not, I don't know if you, you can't force the hand of God towards revival, but I think there's always going to be these elements in revival. And I would say this, there has to be a sense of repentance. Like, God, we hear you. We hear you. We, we really do. You, you spoke directly to my heart. I confess that. You called out my asterisk. You called out my Baal. I'm, I'm gonna conf- I, I, I confess that. If you've ever sensed the Holy Spirit kind of call out your God by name, and you can either like one, ignore that voice or go, okay, Lord, I hear that. We have sinned. We're going to pray. We're going to ask others to pray for us. We're going to fast. I think these are the elements you always kind of see in this idea of revival, repentance, prayer, fasting, confession. It says that in verse 4, the people put away the Baals and they serve the Lord only. This is what they did. Uh, J.D. Greer talks about this and said, this is what true repentance looks like. And in his book on this, he, here's what he said. He goes, here's kind of five elements to repentance. And I don't know, that it seems like a lot to me, but whatever, we'll just show them anyways. I thought this was good. He says, you have to hear what is wrong. I hear, I hear you. I really hear you. I hear, I get it. It's wrong. But then you're owning what is wrong. It's not my parents' fault. It's not this person's fault. It's not the economy's fault. It's not the government's fault. It's, I'm owning it. It's mine. My sin. I hear it. I'm owning it. You're realizing, you're realizing, God, you're right. God, you're right. I'm wrong. You are God. I'm not. That's an element. Four is confessing. Okay, we got it wrong. God. I confess. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. We confess. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Number five, you're turning to God and living for him. So the idea is always, you not, can't just remove these things from your life. You also have to turn to something else. So here's the idea. Idols must be removed and replaced. I've tried to, like, for a lot, I'm going to try to stop doing these things. But that never really works. You can't just try to stop doing these things. You have to replace it with something else. And that something else is something more than else. It's God. Like, i got to replace it with God himself. He alone has the power to help me to quench my flesh to starve my flesh, to feed my spirit. Not just I'm going to stop, but I'm going to start su- serving him, pursuing him, looking after him. Listen, stopping sin will never work. Turning from it is half, halfway there. You have to turn to the living and true God. This is what Paul says in Thessalonians. This is what we see here. And he's like, turn to him. Serve the Lord only, only. That is the idea from this. Here's, here's I think, the way to put it. How do we remove idols from our life? I love what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and set your mind on things above. If you've been raised, if you've been born again with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things above. It's basically your, your heart and your mind and your focus has been in this world, and now it needs to be in heaven. When it's in heaven, everything changes. Heaven is this worship, celebration. Jesus won, worthy as a lamb. It's so different. Can I tell you something about repentance? If repentance doesn't have some sort of rejoicing to it, it will only lead to like despair. If you see people repenting but never like rejoicing about what Christ has done, it's like partial repentance and it's kind of like a misery. If you're just like, I repent, I feel so bad. Like repentance should also have this element of just rejoicing. Because what repentance does is you go, oh my gosh, it is really finished. It really is done. Like repentance without rejoicing is kind of like miserable. Rejoicing without repentance, that's very shallow. If someone's like, look what Christ has done and that's a beautiful thing, but they're not broken over their sin, it doesn't move them to the core. It's kind of like a shallow repentance. 
There's this idea of like repentance and rejoicing go hand in hand for there to be true life change, for there to be a true difference. And this is what's happening. We see the people repenting. We see them praying, fasting. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see a war immediately take place. And we're going to see God promise as he would. He's like, I will rescue you from the hand of the Philistines. We'll see redemption. So number two is this. Uh, We're going to see redemption from the idols. What does that look like? Look at verse seven. Verse seven. Verse seven goes on to say, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines, they went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offering it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below as Beth Car. This is fascinating to me. Victory followed their repentance, but so did war. This is so interesting to me. After they repent, there's going to be victory, but there's also going to be war. If you've noticed, whenever you decide to get close to God, it almost always seems like the enemy tries to attack at that point. Like as soon as you're like, all right, Lord, I'm going to pursue you with all of my heart. The enemy's like, are you? Good luck, right? Like, as soon as they repent, as soon as they repent, the enemy, the Philistines hear of it. I, I wonder, because it says the Philistines heard of it. I wonder if they see it as a sign of weakness. They're like, oh, you're repenting, huh? You're crying out to God? You're fasting? Maybe the, maybe the enemy viewed that moment as just weakness. Like, maybe I think the world sees us repenting, crying out, God, I need you. Like, oh, Christians, you need a crutch. You're like, no, I need, I need more than a crutch. I need to be born again. Like, I need, to be, I need a whole new life right? But I think sometimes people see repentance as weakness. The enemy saw this as weakness and go, let us attack them. And again, this just happens all the time. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized and God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What does it say right after that in Luke 4? Immediately, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Like right after the spiritual high of baptism, John the Baptist is like, you're the Messiah. I can't even touch your sandal strap. Like, no, you're so good. God the Father is speaking. Then right after that, Jesus is fasting and in the wilderness for 40 days with Satan. And I want us to see that after this spiritual high came a great spiritual low. After this sense of like, God, we turned to you. We, we need you, Israel. After this great spiritual high, there's a great spiritual low. I'm just saying, be ready for that. Do not be surprised that after you call upon God or pursue, do not be surprised that a spiritual low might be right around the corner. Do not be surprised. It happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. That after these great spiritual highs will come a really low. Sometimes these lows feel like, where are my friends? Where's God? Where are you? God, I I finally try to make my life right. I don't know how many people I've talked to. It's like, as soon as I started pursuing God, my life got hard. What is that? I'm like, I don't know. Just, that's just the way it works. (laughs) Just get ready. Beware. Your adversary walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Like he's looking for people. As soon as you draw near to God, I do believe God draw near to us. I do believe if you resist the devil, he will flee from you, as James says. But I do believe that that takes some time. Like it takes some time. Don't give up after one day, one week, one month. Like, don't quit. Don't be like, I finally repented and went back to the Lord, and now all of a sudden things are getting bad. Don't quit in that moment. That is the moment where you can see the greatest redemption. It's in the deep valleys and the deep lows you can see the greatest victories right around the corner as well. Like, yes, even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And this is the mindset you have to have. Because right after their repentance, their fasting, their confessing of sin, the Philistines are like, get them! And it is not a coincidence to me. 
It is not a coincidence that as soon as you try to pursue the Lord, the enemy is like, get him, get her. And I say, don't quit at that moment. I love that they were, it says they were afraid. Like, I, just the, the honesty of that emotion. They're afraid. And they go to Samuel, Samuel, will you pray for us? <laughs> Which is just such a funny thing. I have to point this out. Israel's history is constantly looking for like some mediator. Moses was like this mediator. He basically represented the people to God and God to the people. Moses like spoke on behalf of God to Israel and many times spoke on Israel's behalf to God. Samuel was kind of like a Moses. He really was a very important figure in the nation's history. He spoke on behalf of God to the people and the people to God. He was a mediator. Know what I love about this? Paul, in the book of 1 Timothy, takes this theme and says, there is one God and one man, Jesus Christ, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for us all. 1 Timothy 2.5. Do you guys see that? Is it up there? I have no idea. Okay, look at that verse. I want you to think about this. There's always this mediator, Moses, Samuel, but the once and final mediator, mediator, Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. If you look at verse 8 and 9, and don't lose sight of the significance of this. Verse 7 and 8, it says, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2.5. It's really interesting. They're like, hey, can you talk to God for us? He's like, yeah, and I'll offer up a lamb on behalf of you. I'll be your mediator, and I'll offer a sacrifice. Jesus is like, I'm your mediator, mediator, and I'm your sacrifice. I'm the ransom. Now, I'm not the only one who says, God, they're mine. They're covered by my blood. Like, they're covered by my blood. He, there's one God and one man, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for us all. There's not this idea of a nursing lamb with Samuel. Jesus is like, I will become that lamb. I'm the mediator. I'm the lamb. I'm everything. This is what the people ultimately needed in Samuel. What they really needed was this, this in Jesus, this one who'd represent them finally. We have a mediator, you guys. I, I just want to say this. This is so beautiful to me. There's this idea in 1 John 2 that if any uh, one of us sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If anyone sins, John's like, you have an advocate. Jesus going, Father, they're covered by my blood. They've confessed, they believe on me. We have an advocate with the Father. We have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ who gave himself a ransom. And this is what we're seeing just played out in Israel's history, a mediator who gave a ransom, but now in Jesus we see a mediator who is the ransom. Amen? He is that. And he redeems them. And God restores their land, their land to them. And right after, right after this great time of repentance and confessing and brokenness, there is a battle. And again, we must be ready for that. But that's also, I believe, when the Lord shows up. I believe that's also when the Lord does his best work. It's like there's a battle. This is difficult. This is tough. But do not forget you have a mediator in heaven. Do not forget you have a lamb who is sacrificed and slain before the foundation of the world. His name is Jesus. Do not forget that. We have this redemption from the idols themselves. Your land is given back to you, God says. Now, our last point is this. They experience the, this removal, this repentance of idols, this redemption from it. And they're basically saying, we cannot forget what God has done here. So look at verse uh, uh, 12 with me. Verse 12. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So the, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored, restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Stay with me. They just had an amazing victory. God shows up. Remember, he thunders. There's confusion. There's victory in the land. And they're saying, We must not forget and they set up this Ebenezer stone. 
And I love this. This Ebenezer, it just means stone of help. And it's so good because maybe like me, we, you sing some of these old school hymns and songs and you're like, what does this mean? Remember, you know the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Uh, who wrote that? It was Robert Robertson's. And here's what he wrote. He says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by the help I can come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. But it's funny, we sing these things, here I raise my Ebenezer. This Ebenezer was a stone of help. It's basically saying, God, I'm not going to forget that you help. I'm not going to forget that you rescued. I'm not going to forget that you redeemed. I'm not going to forget that you stepped in. I love one definition. It's divine assistance. This Ebenezer is just a reminder that God is there to step in to help. God is that we cannot forget. I recently did a commencement speech at CCA last week, and everyone made fun of me because I basically the whole point was on remembering, and I just love this text. It's on remembering, and after I was done, everyone's like, "Hey, we won't forget," because <laughs> it's on remembering. Um, anyways, but what I love about this idea was remember. There, Israel's history is constantly going. God does something amazing, and we immediately forget. And so what they do, they set up a memorial. Gotta, uh, let's just stack some rocks and make a memorial right here. Uh, let's get an Ebenezer stone because they, here's what they know: they know their heart is prone to forget. Listen, our heart, church, our heart is prone to forget. I look at like my journal as like an Ebenezer. My journal, I have to go back and be like, oh wow, Lord, I forgot that you did that. I forgot that you answered that. I forgot that I was so terrified and you came through. There needs to be Ebenezers in your life. There, and that could truly be a stone. Maybe it's a stone, maybe it's a rock and you write something on it. I've done those things, maybe you've done those things. That's a do with your kids. Like that's a cool thought, an idea, whatever. But there needs to be these places of remembrance. There needs to be like a stone of remembrance, a journal of remembrance, a location maybe of remembrance that you go back to and you say, the Lord is faithful to come and help. The Lord is faithful to intervene. God is faithful to rescue and redeem. He is faithful. And we need these little rocks of remembrance. We need these little moments where we remember and say, God, you are so faithful. You know what is fascinating about this? We actually read this earlier and I had to like go back. So as I'm reading this, I'm like, Ebenezer, that sounds familiar. If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 2, we'll throw it up here because I think this is fascinating. 1 Samuel 4, verse 2. It says, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at where? Where do they encamp at? Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. So they go to Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. It was at Ebenezer they lost 4,000 men. It was at Ebenezer they felt like all hope was gone. This is where the, the ark, it's going to be eventually taken. The point is, and I love, I try to write it this way, the place of defeat became a battle cry of victory. So the idea was, Ebenezer was where we lost. And now they're saying, Ebenezer, God has won. This is where we lost in 1 Samuel 4. We lost, Ebenezer, this is where we lost. And then here, they're, they're set up this rock, this Ebenezer rock or stone, this place of remembrance, stone of remembrance. And they're saying, yes, we lost there, but now that we have victory. We will remember our losses because this is usually where God comes in and redeems. And this is usually now, the loss is usually now that battle cry of victory. Because is not the cross the place where we thought we lost, but God really won? Is not the cross the place where Satan's like, I have a dead Jesus. And God's like, yeah, and I have a resurrection. It's that place of defeat becomes that place of victory. You see that that place was a place of defeat in their eyes, Ebenezer. And now they're like, Ebenezer, God has helped us. I love that. God can sometimes, I think many times, take our greatest defeats and he does turn it into our greatest victories. And he turns it into a battle cry of victories. And yes, Lord, Ebony, we, we, remember, we remember the loss, but we remember the victory that came right after that. 
Here's how Heath Thomas put it. He says, the defeat of God leads to his victory over the Philistines. God was defeated in chapter four. The defeat of God, it leads to his victory over the Philistines. It is the same at the cross. The dead body of Jesus was Satan's trophy of victory, but through Christ's death, the power of Satan was broken. Satan's triumph became his ultimate defeat. Ebenezer, the place of loss became the place of victory. It became the cry of victory. This is what God does so often. Listen, we must remember, church, we are prone to forget. I am prone to forget all the things God has done. I, once I'm in a new trial, I go, God, where are you? And it's almost like God's never, ever helped me. It's like, because this is all I can see, because I have tunnel vision, and this is all in front of me right now. And God's like, you need an Ebenezer. You need like this compass. You need like this, this anchor to remind you of how faithful I am. And I'll say this, first and foremost, that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because whether or not you can ever point to little victories in your life or little moments, I say you have the greatest victory in the cross of Jesus. And that is the only Ebenezer we ever need. Amen? We truly don't need any other Ebenezers. But God is so faithful to give us, I believe, little Ebenezers along the way. These little places that feel like defeat, but God's like, I'm going to turn it into victory. I'm going to take this thing of loss and turn it into a cry of, it is finished. It's done. It's a stone of of help. God, you you intervened. Yes? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite the band to come up here because we are going to end with worship. And we are going to end with communion. Because communion is a little mini Ebenezer. When you look at communion, and you look at this little juice, this little cracker, we go, I remember. I remember it is finished. I remember it's done. I remember God has helped. God has intervened. But listen, if you guys would not get distracted for one moment, I want to throw one verse up here to you. Because to me, this is so central to this, the history of Israel. They forget and they abandon God. They forget and they abandon God. They forget and they turn to idols. And then God's like, remember, remember. And they're like, oh yeah, I remember. And I mean, this happens all the time through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Like there's constant forgetfulness. And then God's like, I gotta, gotta remind you. Here's what it says in Jeremiah chapter 18, 15. It says, because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols. All right, stay with me. Because they forgot me, they went to worthless idols. They burned incense to these worthless idols. Here's the idea. You never really go straight to idols. You usually forget God first. Usually we forget him. And then it's like, God, oh, you're not there. I'm going to turn to something else. And an Ebenezer is just saying, don't forget. It's because they forgot me, they turned to worthless idols. Don't forget. Find some Ebenezers. Write them down. Remember them. Look at communion as one of the best Ebenezers we have. We can say, Jesus, despite what I might feel, This cup filled with this juice reminds me of your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. This cracker that I see here, it reminds me of your body that was broken for me. That Jesus, you paid it all. You are the the rock of salvation. You are the stone of help. Jesus, you are the Ebenezer. You're that rock that I remember. You're that rock that came and intervened. Thank you. So here I raise my Ebenezer. It's that idea of going, Lord, I remember. I remember. I'm gonna raise it up. When I'm prone to forget, I'm going to raise up communion. I'm going to raise up this journal. I'm going to raise up something. I have to say, Lord, I'm not going to forget. The cross reminds me, Jesus, that it is finished. It is done. Here I raise my Ebenezer. One guy named St. Benedict, he wrote something called a rule of life. And in one of his rules to begin, this is how he started. He says, never lose sight of God. Do not fall into forgetfulness. Here is a rule of life. Don't lose sight of God. Never fall into forgetfulness. This is that cry of, I raise my Ebenezer. Let's establish this rock to remember, the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Listen, as you have communion in your hands, we're just going to pray. We're going to worship. Take that little filter off whatever with the cracker in it. 
Hold it and say, Lord, I raise this as remembering. I remember you, Jesus. It is finished. I remember you that your body was broken. Jesus, I raise this cup up. I see this juice in here to remind myself, to remember, to remember that Jesus, your blood was shed. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Again, if you've not yet believed on Jesus, you've not yet confessed your faith in Jesus, you can do that right now. You call upon the name of the Lord and he will save. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. But say, maybe you've never believed that or confessed that. Believe that, confess that. If you don't believe that, don't take communion. There's no need to remember something you don't even believe in. So there's no need to take it. But there is the invitation to take it. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. This is what they did that day. They confessed their sin. They repented. They fasted. They said, Lord, we need you. We'll serve you only. That is our heart. That is the reminder today. Serve him and him only. Remove these idols and replace it with the one true and living God. Amen? We're gonna be up here. I'm gonna be up here. Take and eat, take and drink when you're ready. We're just gonna worship, pray over it for a second. And then I'll come back up and I'll close this out in prayer.